Hey, my name's Jack. I'm um, Bethany Northeast lead pastor. Good to see some new faces this morning. Happy Mother's Day, as Jenny indicated, and uh, grateful for all of you who uh, are parenting. We have so many young kids so who do that in a full-time way or do it in multiple roles, and so uh, I know it's tough work, um, and so thank you for your devotion to your children, and, and good to see some moms here who whose children I get to pastor, so that's fun to also uh, meet you as well. So let's take a moment to pray, and then we're going to dive into God's Word together. God, thank you for this opportunity we have to gather on this special Sunday. Um, as Jenny already prayed, uh, thank you for those in our lives that nurture us, protect us, care for us as our mothers do. Uh, thank you for how you've been like a mother to us, uh, like a father as well, but like a mother, uh, holding us close to your breast. Um, allowing us to hear your heartbeat. Um, so would we hear your heartbeat this morning as we get into your word? We declare and we, we agree that your word is alive, that it's active, that it says, Hebrews says, sharper than any sword, it opens us to new revelation, truth, and, um, and grace. And so God, would that work be done in our hearts and our lives this morning? Would you shape us as a people who are on mission in this world in which we live? the mission of declaring your love for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, we're in Song of Solomon, as the reading indicates. And um, before I started pastoring about 10 years ago, uh, I don't know how many of you would read this trove of pulp, uh, the New York Times Sunday edition. Loved it. I would do this, you know, like I think maybe some of you, I would just read this thing. I loved not only the news, but then you have the fashion section, which is particularly important to me. Uh, there's this uh, book review. There's this new section that my daughter Maren's going to love because it's got slime on the cover, but it's like a kid's section, so you can read that later. But my favorite part of the, the New York Times Sunday edition, and the reason I don't often read anymore is because well, I'm here on Sundays, and who can get through this possibly, and then news cycle so fast, but my favorite section you can't take that. It's mine. Six dollars. So uh, my favorite section is the New York Times magazine. And I would buy this in college and just and read the magazine, love the magazine. There's so many cool things in this magazine. Uh, and this week, particularly, I would just encourage you to spend the six dollars or even go online if you don't have a subscription. I think you can even just read parts of the magazine. Came through on my feed. Uh, they're trying to sell you this stuff, so it came through like on Wednesday, and so then they got me to do it. $6 at Starbucks this morning. So, but I was just kind of intrigued by the cover story. Uh, it's it's uh, a cover story that asks this question, is an open marriage a happier marriage? And then there's these four pictures of this same couple or different variations. Uh, there's the wife and the husband in this corner, girlfriend and husband in this corner, wife and boyfriend in this corner, and then not just us. And so I began to read this article earlier in the week and then a little more this morning uh, and was, I'll just say, deeply disturbed. Uh, it's, it's an article about uh, what we've called polygamy or polyamory, and, uh, or they're calling it the new monogamy. Here's a quote from the article. Uh, the, this article is about this woman, Elizabeth and Daniel, and uh, this goes through the whole story of their, their life and their journey. And it says, uh, 
the author says, I met Elizabeth and Daniel through Tammy Nelson, who's a, a sex and couples therapist in New Haven, Connecticut, and an old friend of theirs. She's not officially their therapist, although she had a particular interest in open relationships. In 2010, she wrote an article in Psychotherapy Networker, a professional publication about the frequency with which she was encountering married couples who idea, whose ideas of fidelity were more lax than those she encountered in the outset of her career. She thought of the phenomenon as, quote-unquote, the new monogamy, because uh, she doesn't like the word polyamory, so she calls it the new monogamy, which became the title of the book she published in 2012. And here's a quote from this therapist. The new monogamy is, baldly speaking, the recognition that for an increasing number of couples, marital attachment involves a more fluid idea of connection to the primary partner that is true of the old monogamy. Within the new notion of monogamy, each partner assumes that the other is and will remain the main attachment, but that outside attachments of one kind or another are allowed as long as they don't threaten the primary connection. The spectrum of those attachments include one-night stands and ongoing relationships. As she understands it, this is the therapist speaking again, honesty and transparency rather than fidelity were the guiding principles underlying the healthiest of these kinds of marriages. The couples did not perceive their desire to see other people as the symptom of dysfunction, <laughs> wow, but rather as a fairly typical human need that they thought they were up to the challenge of navigating. Uh, so I started to read this, and you know, as you can imagine, your, your gut's probably just in a knot right now. I was discouraged, disheartened, disgusted a little bit. But you know, it reflects, I think, something that is true of the world outside these doors, which is this profound ambivalence we have with love, and relationships. In other words, we want them, and then we don't. And here's what I mean by that. I did a little quick search, uh, and this is not just about marriage, friendship, community, uh, you know, our extended families, coworkers, getting to know the stranger on the bus, as Joan Osborne once said, we love, we want it, and then we don't. So I did a little search on Amazon this week under the heading of relationships in the book section. Do you know how many relationship books are on Amazon.com right now? Just relationship books. 460,000 plus titles on just relationships. And that breaks down into a variety of different types of relationships. Here's a few. In the first 10 pages of results, just pulled a few down. Trust issues. That's the title. Subtitle, manage the anxiety and security and jealousy in your relationship with 10 simple steps. 10 steps. Great. If you have trust issues. Uh, too good to leave, too bad to stay. A step-by-step -step guide to help you decide whether to stay in or get out of your relationship. Oh, here's one. How to talk to anyone. 92 tricks and tips for big success in relationships. Oh, here's, here's another one for the women. Power texting men. The best texting attraction book to get the guy. There you go. <laughs> yeah. And then the last one, my favorite. How to make people like you in 90 seconds or less. 90 seconds for relationship. Which, you know, all which is to say we desperately want love and relationships and then we don't. We're just, we're trying 460,000 ways to get in them and get out of them, you know? Uh, and to be blunt, we're just playing with, like, radioactive material when we're, when we're, when we're trying to apply uh, love and relationships to our lives. I mean, seriously, 90 seconds to begin a relationship. It's like a microwave dinner for a relationship. You can't do that. It's not healthy. Uh, the new monogamy, are you, I mean, are you joking, Right? You're going to experiment with love in this way and trust your own intuition and good sense. Uh, it's, it's, like I said, kind of sickening. And this is why we're studying the Song of Solomon. 
Uh, why, you know, many churches have not done this ever. <laughs> Richard, as I said last week in 30 years of pastoring and preaching, has never taught this. And so we're going in, it's a risky uh, series because uh, our world is just in a relationship crisis. And so we've titled the series, if you have a bulletin, SOS, Help Me Love, SOS being sort of, you know, Morse code for help, also Song of Solomon. Didn't. <laughs> Uh, but it's a cry for help. We, need, we just need help, don't we? Uh, the world outside these doors needs help. We, we need help. We're not just because we're inside these doors now and we pray to receive Christ insulated from anything that Amazon's trying to, or this magazine is trying to teach you. We have marriages that are breaking in dysfunction. We have coworkers that we hate, neighbors whose dogs poop on our lawn every day and we don't know how to respond to. We have broken family relationships. Today, Mother's Day. For many of us, it's a hard day, not an easy day. That phone call will not be easy, and I am in that boat with you. So when the, uh, the Bible, the Song of Solomon, just offers this powerful vision as well as a, an incredible simplicity when it speaks about love and relationships, it is the help we need. Uh, and so when, and when the Bible speaks about love and relationships and God's design for love, this is kind of the lens I want to look at with you, both between God and humanity as well as between humans, uh, in marriages, friendships, absolute strangers, there's not 460,000 types. There's not a new monogamy and an old monogamy. There's just one type of relationship. And that type is what I want to talk through with you this morning. It's called covenant love. Uh, so we're going to look at that type, covenant love, what it is, kind of under uh, three headings this morning, kind of three aspects of covenant love that are both vital to our relationships with each other, but also key with our relationship to God, okay? And so the outlines in your bulletin, we're going to the need for covenant love, the nuance within covenant love, and then how to nurture it, just some practical applications, okay? And so if you have a Bible, Song of Solomon chapter 2, kind of be in and around it. I'm not going to go verse by verse, but it'd be good to have it open. You can have it open on your device. I've got a device right here. And so uh, you don't have to have an actual physical Bible in front of you. So first, our need for covenant love. This is kind of verses 2 to 5. Let me read those verses again, even though Sean did. Because uh, you see in these specific verses just how crazy in love these people are for each other. Okay? So this is what the woman says. Like a lily among thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. And then she, she says of him, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. In his shade I took great delight and sat down. His fruit was sweet to my taste. He's, and there's this 1980s song. He's brought me to his banquet hall, and his banner on me is love. And then she says, sustain me with raisin cakes, refresh me with apples, because I'm lovesick. Stop here. Conventional wisdom, when you hear that phrase, I'm lovesick, it says right here, oh, she's found the perfect person, right? Her, her soulmate, her yin to her yang. Uh, it's like this puppy love on fire. You know, they, we both love Starbucks and read the New York Times, uh, we both love Seinfeld reruns and eating Ben and Jerry's. We're just so mad for each other. We're perfect. Like, and we read that, some of us, and we're like, yes, I found that person. I'm in this story. And then others of us, we're just so bummed and discouraged because we haven't found that person who meets our list, the yin to our yang. We're not in romance, not in friendship, not in community, not in a church. We're lonely and we're discouraged. We thought we found that person three months into the relationship, uh, five years into marriage, or we moved in with some roommates if you're single, it all began well until they started leaving their dishes in the sink, right? 
or they left their underwear uh, next to the bed, dirty. You know, just like you go, what? Or we find a church that, that, that fits all our needs, and, and then the pastor preaches this really horrific sermon. Uh, we find the person, the person isn't who we thought they were, and we're bummed. Or we don't find anyone. <laughs> we're lonely. We're discouraged. We think God's just left us out of his story. So what is this, uh, this I'm lovesick? Is this the Bible's way of just bumming us out? You know, just saying, well, for some of you, you're in. Others of you, sorry, someday, maybe, you know, Jesus is your boyfriend kind of thing. Well, uh, I'll just say this right now. The Bible doesn't often follow the path of conventional wisdom. So that's conventional wisdom thinking. And you have to get yourself outside of those ruts because the Bible doesn't often follow this path. So this isn't conventional wisdom, perfect love, love sickness. Something radically different, which is rooted in this understanding of the Song of Solomon that's fundamentally different than many traditional readings of it. And so if you were here the first week, uh, or if you've seen the little video we have on our Facebook site, first week Richard preached a sermon to kind of frame out the series. I would, if you weren't here, encourage you to go back and listen to it. Uh, it's on our website, and so you can kind of get that and kind of help understand, help you understand what, how we're looking at Song of Solomon, different than many other times. And, and the video is also interesting. It's a little promo video. It talks about this love triangle. And I know some of you are like, wait, you just talked about monogamy, what? But listen, okay, so there's this love triangle, and this is how we're interpreting this story. And in the love triangle, if you can just picture a triangle, three main characters in this story. You have this woman who's the main character. We often hear her voice speaking. So we hear her, most of Song of Solomon chapter 2 is this woman speaking. And she, these three characters are kind of types, not just uh, actual figures in the story. So types, the woman is this type for humanity. So in some way, we are all male, female, gay, straight, married, single. We are all the woman in this story in as much as we are seeking to know Jesus, okay? We're in the world. We live in the world people. So that's one person in this story. Then there's these two men. One of the men who is the King Solomon, and oftentimes this story is read through the lens of King Solomon writing to his first love, and then he falls off the wagon and starts to marry lots of women, and we're not reading it that way. The way we're looking at this is, is King Solomon is, is one of the two men in this story, and, and he really he represents the darkness of our hearts, the darkness of the world, this darkness of conventional wisdom that I just talked about, uh, th that's trying to drag us into these relationships that I'll talk about in a moment, that are, that are, that are not just imperfect, but that are very broken and, and unsustainable. So that's one man in the story. Then on the other side of this triangle is this other man, uh, this, who the Bible or Song of Solomon talks about as the beloved man. And we kind of hear him in the background in this chapter today. Uh, and really, he's the type for Christ. So you have Solomon, type for the world, beloved, type for Christ, who's her first love, her true love, and this woman who's us. And, and again, not, let's not worry about all the thoughts that are creeping in your mind like right, right now, like love triangle. I I mean, this is not about a literal love triangle. Don't worry about that, please. We're not endorsing that at all. In fact, the uh, commentator who we're leaning into, Ian Provane, he's a professor at Regent College. He says this really helpfully about Song of Songs. Let me just read this real quick. He says, What we have in the Song of Songs, what we appear to have, is a dramatic composition of uncertain date and authorship. We don't know who wrote it. Could be a male, could be a woman. Uh, that sets before us, in our for our consideration, two different kinds of relationships, both male, female, but also just put yourself 
outside that kind of uh, rubric of just marriage. Relationships, two types. One, which is the, the type the Bible champions, the other, which is common to our experience in the world. Uh, the first, which occupies most attention of this, this book, is, is the manner of relationship in which the woman and a man enter freely into love and sexual intimacy, and they bind themselves in lasting commitment to each other, give themselves to each other physically, emotionally, spiritually, in joyful abandonment that knows no reservation and no shame. It's a wooing relationship. We'll talk about this in, in weeks to come. Uh, it's covenantal love, as we're going to talk about in a moment. That's one kind of relationship. The second kind, now listen to this, which lurks in the background of the Song of Songs, and is occasionally, it has the spotlight shown on it, we're going to look at this next week, places the male in a dominant and powerful position over the female, such that she does not enter this relationship by choice, but is only a, a pawn in a male game that has to do with legal contracts, money, collection of objects, pleasure, or as we might say today, money, sex, power, control. These are, and these are contractual relationships. And there are covenantal and contractual relationships all around us all, all the time. In fact, we live in a world driven by contractual relationships. And what I mean by that is that most of our cell phones, our mortgages, our leases, our car like loans are forms of contracts, right? In which we're saying, I'm, I'm going to give you these things, but if I give you these things, <laughs> you have to give me these things. So I'll give you this amount of money, but if I give you this money, I expect you to give me this much data or this much house, or this much car, right? And if you don't give me those things, if I give you that, I'm out. A new bank, a new ISP, new phone company, just whatever it is, right? Those are contracts. And the point here is that more and more and more in our society, human-to-human -human relationships really get off like this. Two people look at each other. It doesn't matter, again, if it's intimate or non-intimate. They say, I'm going to be what I should be as long as, and to the degree that, you are what you should be. And if you're not what you should be, I'm out, right? Relationships that are contractual because they're, they're give to get. I'll give you this if I can get this from you, right? Are you with me? Anybody have anything like that going in their life? Human to human. Uh, friendships, working relationships, neighbors. Maybe it's an intimate relationship. Now, on the other hand, covenantal relationships, like this relationship between this woman and this man we're looking at today, are relationships that are, are better described as give-give, or give-give-give-give-give. So in, in a covenant, whether it's a formal covenant like marriage, or informal covenants like parenting or friendship, two people look at each other and they say this, I will be what I should be, whether you are what you should be or not, no matter the prevailing circumstances of the day no matter if your breath stinks, no matter if you're suffering from postpartum, no matter if you put on 30 pounds, no matter if uh, your know, hair falls out, or if you're working too hard and thus always tired and detached, I will be what I should be no matter what. That's covenant. And therefore, it's very scary to get into a covenant with another human being because we always fall short of the expectations of the other. And that's why a covenant only works if both people say... I'll be what I should be no matter what. It, it, both have to say, it, both have to say, I'll be no, what I should be no matter what, I, what, I, what happens. If only one person says that, if you're in a relationship where only one person's saying that, that's not covenant. You haven't reached that high watermark yet. That's abuse, that's codependency, that's uh, exploitation. 
And God is calling us toward covenant relationship. However, if you're really in a covenant, both parties are saying, hey, you're more important to me. You're, this relationship is more important to me than my needs. Even though my needs are deeply felt, I will be committed to your needs before my needs. I will be committed to this relationship even though it's not meeting my needs in the moment. I will give you my independence. I'll give you my freedom. I'll give you my love as a free gift. No return on investment expected. You know, if one side and the other side are both saying that, I'm not after my needs, I'm after yours, I will sacrifice my life for you, which is what we see Jesus doing for us in the gospel. If both people say that, that's not only more, far more fulfilling in relationship and profound and deep, it's just, it is precisely what the Bible talks about when it talks about love. Not only here, but elsewhere. So, probably the best illustration of this I could find is in the Old Testament in the life of Abraham. And you know his story maybe. Uh, father of all, Father Abraham had seven sons. Let's all sing it. So, in Genesis 12 and 14, uh, you see this covenant made between Abraham and God. And the key phrase in this covenant, if you read that story, the key phrase that comes up again and again and again in the book of Genesis is this, I will. And this is God speaking. He says to Abraham, I will, I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will make you the father of all nations. I will make kings come forth from you. I will make your offspring more numerous than the stars in the sky. That's God making a covenant with Abraham, saying, I'm all in. No matter what, no matter the prevailing circumstances, you know Abraham's story. <laughs> and, and the real nature of how that plays out is actually later in the story. A couple generations later with his grandson Jacob, who's like the inheritor of this promise, this I will, Genesis uh, 32, 33, inherits this promise and he's just blown it in huge ways. Remember this, you know, lying, cheating, stealing. He's on, he's on the run. His brother Esau's after him because he's stolen everything from Esau. And then God stops Jacob in this dream, and, and we just really begin to see the power of the covenant. God says to J uh, Jacob in this dream in Genesis 28, I will be with you no matter what. And you, by the way, he's failed. And then later in the story, you know, they wrestle. God displaces his hip, which is just a metaphor for God humbling his pride and arrogance, bringing him down to earth. And that humility, it's fascinating if you read Jacob's story, because in Genesis 33, he turn, he's, turn, he turn, he's wrestled with God, he turns around. Rather than running from Esau, he goes to face up to Esau, his older brother. He's stolen everything from this guy. And Esau has every right to be mad at Jacob, every right to put Jacob in his place, every right to just slap him across the head, take it back. And you look at Genesis 33. Uh, man, I just got to read this verse because it's really powerful. Genesis 33 Jacob goes to face Esau, falls in front of him on his face, and, and, J and Esau's like, what are you doing? And Genesis 33.9, uh, Jacob says to him, uh, if I've found favor in your sight, Esau, then accept my present, the present from my hand. I, I, I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. Because you've accepted me, please accept my blessing. He's blessing his brother back because God has dealt graciously with me. And listen to this, and because I have enough. He knows what it means to now finally be in covenant relationship that, that he, he, he can bring things to the table now to serve and bless. 
I will be what I should be despite the circumstances of our life, the brokenness of our family, the weather, your failures, your flaws, my fears. I have enough. I am taken care of. I am dearly loved. And I can bless you now because of that. I don't need to grasp at things anymore. I don't need to strive anymore. I certainly don't need to strive for love. That's covenant love. It's pure gift. Now, the ways we see this, that's kind of the first, we need it. (laughs) I mean, I don't know how many of you are on this page with me, but I need that in my life. People in my life, many of you who are saying, I'm in, I'm all in, I'm with you. No matter if you preach a terrible sermon, no matter if our church is the hottest church on the block, no matter what's going on in your life, I'm with you. And you need each other in the same way. It's, It's something we need. And the way we see that need expressed in the Song of Solomon is very nuanced. So let's move to this kind of second heading. Uh, And you kind of see it in verses 5 to 7. And you wouldn't normally pick up on this, so I just want to kind of do some word parsing with you for a moment. Uh, There's three different words, Hebrew words, that are used for love in this little passage we read that make up this sort of composite picture of covenant love, okay? So in verse 3, when the woman calls the man beloved or, or lover or whatever, that's the Hebrew word dode, and it can mean it's a noun in this context. It's her husband, her lover, but it also can be a verb. Here's the verb meaning, an impulse of the heart, sexual attraction. We call this erotic love. The Greek word there is eros, okay? That's one form of love in this passage. Second form is actually in verse 2, where he calls her darling, uh, bride. That's a noun, okay? Here's the verb form, companion or friend companionship or friendship. And we have Greek words for that too. Uh, The Greek word is phileo, where we get philanthropy or philosophy or the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, which by the way is an oxymoron. But anyway, I've been there. (laughs) Love you, Philadelphia. Uh, So that's that's this word raya. So you have dod, you have raya. But there's a third word being used in this passage as well. It's used three times in just this little section we read, but it's all over the Song of Solomon. It's this word, ahava, verses 4, 5, and 6. For example, when, when she says, his banner over me is love, it's the word ahava. When she says she's lovesick, what do you think? Eros. She's just ready to... No, that's ahava. She is sick with ahava. Now, the word for ahava, the word ahava is actually a nuanced word. It can be love for an object, actually. So I love coffee. I ahava bike, bikes. I ahava kung fu movies. I don't know if you knew that. Love kung fu movies. Uh, less often, it's a, it's, a, it's a love for appetites, like food, drink, length of life, sleep, wisdom, knowledge. Uh, sometimes it's a love of God. So Abraham was a friend of God. The book of James tells us this. If you were to translate into Hebrew, Hebrew that's ahava. He was Abraham's ahava. And then also it's love in human relationships specifically of children and spouses and neighbors and strangers. Never of, uh, in a a spousal relationship especially, uh, of like a sexual love. Ahava is not sexual. In fact, the the force of the meaning behind ahava is desire, inclination, or affection. It's affection. Uh, And and actually, the, the, the Greek word for ahava is this word storge, which is interesting because there's this book, I don't know how many of you read this book. Years ago, I, I read this, uh, this uh, C.S. Lewis book, The Four Loves. How many of you have read this or know of it? Do you any know The Four Loves? 
I already named them, or three of the four. There's eros, which is this word dod in Hebrew. There's phileo, which is this word riah in Hebrew. There's agape, which is not in this passage, which is God's unconditional love. And you'd think that's covenant love, right? (laughs) And there's this word storge, which I've not spent a lot of time with because I I love the others. Friendship and eros, but storge even sounds a little bit like a kind of a bummer, right? But that's the word affection. And ahava is affection. And, and, and affection is, a fa- is fascinating if you read this book and, and kind of understand the, the context of, of this passage we're in. Uh, it, like, again, verse 5, we hear she's lovesick. We think it's eros, passion, but it's not. It's, it's, it's ahava, and, and it's important on this number of levels. Lewis's insight specifically is this. Uh, he says this, that, that ahava, storge, affection, covenant love, always exists in an ecosystem. And here's what he says. Uh, he says, I'm talking about affection as if it was one from the, uh, apart from the other, like it just existed by itself. It sometimes does, often it does not. As gin is only a drink by itself, uh, but also a base of many mixed drinks, so affection is, besides being a love by itself, it can enter into the other loves and color them all through and become the very medium in which from day to day they operate they would perhaps not wear very well without affection, without ava. To make a friend, for example, phileo, raya, to make a friend is not the same as to become affectionate with that friend. The, the Bible talks about the kiss of friendship. Think of that. How many of you kiss your friends? Well, you do in France, but not here. We kind of hug, you know, but keep, you know, a little distance. Some of you are laughing because it's too true for you, but... Um, how, what about becoming affectionate with your friends? When your friends become an old friend, C.S. Lewis says, all those things about him or her, which originally had nothing to do with friends, should become familiar and dear. Uh, what about erotic love, he says? Uh, this is amazing. I can imagine nothing more disagreeable than to experience it for more than a very short time without the, this homespun clothing of affection. That would be the most uneasy condition, he says, either too angelic or too animal. Never quite great enough or too little. There's indeed a particular charm both in friendship and in eros, in, in raya and in dode, about those moments when appreciative, affectionate love curls up asleep next to us and is at ease with the ordinariness of our relationship. Free as solitude, yet neither is alone. Wraps around us, no need to talk, no need to make love. No needs at all except to stir the fire. We'll come back to that metaphor of a fire in a moment. But the key here is that, that uh, ahava, this idea of covenant love, affection, exists in an ecosystem of love. It doesn't stand alone uh, by itself. It complements. It strengthens. And that's the key, really, to understanding covenant love and, and Song of Solomon. So if you look at verses 3 and 4 again, let me read these. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved, Dode, among the young men. I, inferring Raya, I, Raya, delight to sit in his, Dode, shade, his fruits sweet to my taste. Let him, Dode, lead me, Raya, to the banquet hall. Let his banner, Dode's banner, be over me, love, Ava. There's this ecosystem. It's all woven together. Do you see this? 
uh, and it's rich, and it's beautiful. And, and right away what you see is that the, in that ecosystem, what love is, the, the effect of love in our lives is much more powerful than just merely these binary sort of, I'm in love with this person, I'm a friend with this person, and we have affection, right? They're all woven in. So take, for example, this idea of an apple tree. It's, it's really a, an image meant to, to both evoke protection as well as pleasure. So you have this idea of affection as well, of, as well as eros. We just planted a tree in our front yard that we used here as a sermon um, response one Sunday. And, and I was taking off, there was these, those t- some of you were here, so there was these little res- tags you wrote on there, anxiety. And I, God prunes my anxiety and brings courage or uh, patience, you know, and those things. So I'm pruning those off as we're planting the tree, and I was just a wet mess. Just powerful to put this tree, which is like a metaphor for all these relationships we have, and I share with you, in the ground in front of my house, uh, protection mixed with delight. Like, this tree's going to grow, and that, those hopes that you have are alive in your lives. Uh, this, this is an idea, I think, that the, the, the book is trying to teach us about love. It's not just eros and friendship. It's all woven in. Or the banner. Take this for a second. In verse 4, you know, we have that 80s song I mentioned. Some of us are singing it under your breath right now. Uh, we could do that as a response, Jalith. That was a bad joke. Okay, anyway, so you don't even know what I mean? His banner over you, his banner over me. Okay, 280 song in one sermon, that's too much. So, all right, back to where I am. The banner can have two meanings. It can be a sign outside a pub, like a marquee, or like, you know, you've seen these kind of like outside of a bar. Or it can be a flag carried into a battle. You see this in Isaiah, you see this in Numbers, sort of a standard. Standard bearers would go out with these flags. And theologians are always debating, which one is it? But guess what? It doesn't matter. Because both, if this, if this idea of love is really woven together in this ecosystem, uh, this woman's lover is inviting her both to receive his love as an invitation, come in, as well as he's declaring his fierce intent for her. I am going to fight for your love until I die. And Jesus does die in that fight. That's what this image is about. It's, it's this ecosystem uh, of love. It's a place of protection and fierce intent, freedom and profound opportunity to experience delight. Love, that's why you just don't love one person in your life. We have a community intended to love us and love, and that's why covenant is so important in following Christ. Uh, so let's apply this to our life real quick before we move on to this final point. Uh, there's, kinda, there's three fruits of covenant, pardon the pun here, but three fruits if, if you're going to kind of apply this idea of an ecosystem to your life. And the first is this, that covenant love provides a zone of security for you, okay? It's this apple tree idea, uh, the banner over you. It's a place where you can finally be yourself. You know, if you're in a relationship where you, you know, like in consumer relationships, you're always marketing, right? You're always selling. You're always performing. You're trying to meet the other person's need. But in a covenant, if you're inside of one of these relationships, as a parent, as a spouse, as a friend, as a neighbor, you can finally just... Let your hands off and get rid of the facade and just be yourself. You can let him or her know that you're insecure because you know they're not going to walk out. You're full of doubts and fears. Uh, you can be yourself. You have a zone of safety. I have a friend who, who told me that. He, he confessed to his wife recently all the doubts he was having about his faith. You know, ex- fully expecting her like to either, let's get counseling, right now, or walk out. 
And guess what she did? She leaned in. She said, hey, I'm with you. That's covenant. She said, that doesn't matter. Let's doubt together. <laughs> let's, let's fail forward. Let's do that. Let's, let's, be, let's, be try, let's, let's do that. So that's it. It's a zone of security. Covenant love also, here's the second thing. Ironically, when you're committed to a person in spite of your feelings, deeper feelings can grow. So it's a zone of security, but also a place when you really commit. See, I'm, I'm all in. Deeper feelings can grow. So, for example, in parenting, when, when, whether you're a parent or not, all of you know you've all been parented at some level, whether well or not. You give, uh, you give a little back for a long time. You, you get a little back for a long time. You know, the kids never catch up. You're just always loving. You're trying to love. And it seems like you're just never kind of getting back what you put in. You give, you give, you give. And it's not a consumer relationship, though. Not at all. I hope my daughter doesn't hear that. You, you adjust, you give, you give. And what's weird is you do it, you're so invested uh, that when, when they act in no way lovable at all, your kids, uh, there's this deep, rich feeling inside of you because you're invested in them emotionally. In some way, think of your marriage in this way. Uh, your friendships, your neighbors, you know, if brothers and sisters in Christ, if you have this, op- this attitude of, of leaning in and giving, giving, and giving, it doesn't squash your feelings. You just, for some reason, deeper feelings grow. I've seen it. Uh, so I've seen, it's true. So the first thing is you have this zone of safety. The second thing you have this place of deep, rich feelings. The third thing that's really, I think, the most powerful is that covenantal relationships bring freedom. So uh, the banner, like I said, God's love for us, a desire for our freedom. There's this Christian ethicist named uh, Louis Smeads. He wrote this article years ago that I kind of read as an, a young pastor and still a new husband, and it really helped me enormously in both those, those areas. Uh, the article is called Controlling the Unpredictable, the Power of Promising. And he, he locates in this article the very basis of our identity on the power of covenant and, and argues that he very eloquently, actually, that, that it's covenant, that promising another person that I will be there, that's the means to your freedom, actually. We think of it as ball and chain, you know, you're stuck. Uh, he argues otherwise. He says, in promising, you limit your options. This is a quote. You limit your options now in order to have wonderful, fuller options later. You curb your freedom now so you can be free to be there in the future with the people who trust you. When you make a promise to someone, when you bind yourself to them, both of you know that you're going to be there with and for them, no matter what. And you've created, I love this, this image, you've created a small sanctuary of trust in a jungle of unpredictability. A small sanctuary of trust in a jungle of unpredictability. He, he's saying that, you know, you're not merely X's and Y's in some sort of genetic code. You're not fated. You're not a puppy dog where just you respond to love robotically. He's saying you can choose this, and if you do choose this, you will be freer than you've ever been before. You'll be a free being. And that's what it means to love, especially in a world of contracts and arrangements and negotiations. Uh, just leaning in saying, hey, I give you my love. I, I, I commit to you. I promise to you. It brings rest into our lives. And so if you want to experience that, I just dare you. <laughs> Make a promise. Uh, say, I'm here. I, you don't adjust to me. I, I'm here to adjust to you. I serve you. You don't complete me, as the movie says, you know. 
because I am complete in Christ. I can be free just to be in relationship with you. Do that in, 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 with someone in your life, and you have begun to experience and, and choose love as the Bible understands love. So that's kind of the, the nuance of love. Let me just apply this, how to nurture it. Because, you know, great, we have a need for it. There's a great nuance to it. I love all the word, word stuff, Jack. Thank you. What do I do? How do I live this out? And I love the last part of the passage. We didn't read all of it, but verses kind of 7 to 15, because there's some real practical ways that all of us can do this, can, can lean into love, okay? Uh, so the first is, well, actually, let me just read verse 7, because I don't remember if we read it. I think we skipped it. And oftentimes, this would be a good one to skip, because here's what it says. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles of, uh, or by the hinds of the field, uh, you do not arouse or awaken love until she pleases. <laughs> and we usually read this, whoa, and I didn't have Sean read it, because we just get, we focus on the warning. We get off the rails. Like, be careful, you know, with love. Uh, there's this, you know, we, we focus on the, the warning, and there's a warning in here. But there's also an immense promise. The warning, hear me, the warning's important. It's rooted in this awareness that, like I said earlier, love is like this fire. So if you read Song of Songs 8, verse 6, it says that love is as strong as death. Its jealousy is unyielding as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire. And so with the, the idea is that love, this is covenant love, this ecosystem I was just talking about, is like a fire. And fire, it doesn't matter if it's a little campfire or a little candle or enormous raging wildfire, is a very volatile thing. Uh, and it needs to be handled skillfully as well as stewarded well. And so that's the warning. Be careful as you stir up love, as you tend the fire <laughs> that C.S. Lewis talks about, because it, has, it, it has incredible power. I mean, how many of you have ever had a... But here's the promise. There's a warning. Be careful. There's a promise in there, though. Do you hear the promise? You can stir up love. So how many of you have ever had a campfire? You know, you've gone camping... I think we did this a couple summers ago. Go camping, you, you leave it kind of to burn down in the middle of the night. Don't ever just leave it and go home. You're supposed to get it wet and things like that. We left it, you leave it, and then you get up and you, oh, you want to have some, something hot on the fire, coffee or whatever, and so you kind of put your hand down there and you can just feel the warmth, right? But it's, you know, ashes. And uh, so you blow on it and, and you, can, you blow all the ash off and you can see just a little ember down there and you, you blow a little more you blow a little more, maybe add some, some tinder to it, and suddenly, uh, man, you have a huge fire, and you didn't have to strike a single match. You didn't have to take out any newspaper or any lighter fluid, <laughs> whatever you use. Uh, you just stirred up that enormous, powerful light, that fire. All that fire needs is sometimes just a little puff of air. You can stir up love. You can stir up covenant love. That's the promise. You can stir up friendship. You can stir up affection. You can stir up sexual intimacy. Love can be stirred up. And perhaps your idea of love, in whatever way you experience it in your life, has just grown dark and cold. Perhaps in your marriage, it, your intimacy is gone. Perhaps in your friendships, just people seem absent and distant. You don't feel like you have close friendships. Uh, perhaps in your neighborhood, we have a friend who's a neighbor, uh, your neighbors are hostile. How do I stir up love? Well, here's how. You can stir it up 
Verse 9, he says, it says here, he looks through the lattice. He's not a creeper, don't worry. <laughs> uh, he looks through the lattice and he sees his beloved. And I can really identify with what this is about. I, like I said, I lived in Kenya. I haven't told you this this morning, but lived in Kenya for a short time in my 20s. And I had these kids who would watch me every day in the morning, make my breakfast. They, they literally steer, the, the windows are like lattice there. There are these little panes of glass and they tilt up and they just poke their eyes in and look in my windows every day. Lots of them, lots of little neighborhood kids. And I would, initially it felt very intrusive, often very oppressive. You know, I wanted my privacy. But now, as I have my own kids, and I read this book, and I lay around and I watch my kids, and my kids watch me sometimes just around the house with an immense curiosity and child, childlike adoration, affection, I kind of know what they were doing. Uh, they were just staring through the lattice. They were adoring me. They were curious about me. Uh, so let me ask you this. You can stir up love. When's the last time you have someone in your life, you just stared at them? You just look deep into their soul. You know, there's that phrase, it's not actually in the Bible, but I think it's extra biblical, the eyes are the window to the soul. It's, Jesus says something about light eyes and all that, but the, the actual verse is not there. So try, you won't find it. But you can look into somebody's eyes and you'll see God. How many times have you done that recently? Just looked at somebody, just stared through the lattice. You can stir up love by just looking deeply into somebody's eyes seeing Christ in them. Uh, verse 10, where this beloved says, Arise and come away with me. The winter is past. The spring has come. I don't need to say much here, but love wants to be invited. <laughs> and how many times have you really just invited somebody away with you? Arise, come away with me. Let's do this together, just me and you. Let's put the devices away. Let's, let's get a babysitter. Let's just go on a long walk together as friends. Uh, you know, I did this with Elizabeth recently. We just kind of meandered all the way down to like Ravenna. And it was so fun with my wife of 15 years to just wander through Seattle. Arise and come away with me. Jesus, Jesus says something similar in Matthew 11. He says, are you tired? <laughs> are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? What does he say? Come away. Get away with me, and you're going to recover your life. I'll just show you how to take a rest. <laughs> I'll, uh, watch me. Work with me. Learn from me the unforced rhythms of grace. Arise and come away. You get to learn about the unforced rhythms of grace in relationship with each other. The last thing, verse 15 Catch the foxes. Uh, when she says, catch the foxes, she's talking about these things that ruin their garden, which is their intimacy, and really inviting us to do the hard work of saying, what are those things in your relationships that are ruining intimacy? Whether they're just simply distractions, you know, you keep your cell phone by your bed, ruining intimacy. <laughs> uh, or if there are lies in your life that have been spoken over you, untruths, unbelief, shame, dealing with those. Those are enemies to intimacy. The invitation is to catch those things, not let them linger in your life anymore. They have no place 
in your life and no place in your relationships. Catch them. So here's your response. I just want to give this to you as a little homework. And we're going to invite, I want to invite the worship team back up. Here's your homework. This week or today, Mother's Day, take a long, loving look at, at someone. Maybe it's your mom. Maybe it's just a friend. Long, loving look. Look them in the eyes. I dare you. And maybe do it for like, start with like 10 seconds. But I, and that'll be awkward. I've tried it. But look in somebody's eyes and just adore them. No words. Okay? And you don't do this right now. But, but homework. Extend, number two, extend an invitation to someone. This could be a spouse, a friend, a child, a parent, a neighbor. Just say, hey, come away. Let's go out. Let's go for this walk. Let's, let's learn the unforced rhythms of grace together. And then the last thing, and this will be a harder one, is if there are foxes in your life, in your relationships, I just want to invite you, things that ruin intimacy. Like I said, things that have been spoken over your life or things that are in your relationships that are, are preventing you from connecting with others. I want to invite you just this week to begin to ask the Lord, how might He come alongside you in dealing with those? You can't do it in your own strength. But God does want to deal with the foxes. He does not want you to be alone. He wants you to be in union with Him and in union with others. Covenant love. That's the vision for our, our lives. Restoration, renewal. So those, that's your homework for the week, okay? You, you good? That's a lot. Let me just take a moment to pray, and then we're going to respond by singing together. God, thank you for uh, the opportunity we've had to just kind of be in your word together and learn, uh, learn about this idea of love. Uh, but God, I, I just, I mean, I'm aware even as a church that it can be a little cerebral. We love <laughs> thinking about things. Taking that from our head to our hearts is a long journey. Um, and so, God, would you give us strength for the journey, those of us who are not experiencing the depth of love you have for us, for ourselves, with you? Would you give us strength for that journey? Uh, and would you give us courage to take just the first step here, whether that's taking a moment today to look at somebody deeply, saying a word or reaching out to someone and asking for help. God, give us the courage and, and, and the things we need to take those steps toward you. And thank you most of all that your son first loved us, gave his life for us, so that we could experience what it means to be loved and to love. So we pray these things and we respond now, worshiping Christ who is our Savior.